Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 this morning. We're going to take more of the text, but I'm just going to read those first 12 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Then he said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are not by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come to worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until they came, and it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, her mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's open our time in prayer before we go through our text. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... uh, giving it to us that we might understand who you are and we might understand what you have accomplished on our behalf and that we might again know our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know you and that we ultimately might have salvation and spend eternity with you. So speak through your word this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. When we read the accounts of the Christmas story, we often think that the authors are just giving us information so that we can know what happened. And so we often just tend to read these texts in isolation and we just kind of read and say, this is what happened. This is what happened on the night that Christ was, was born, the shepherds came, we, you know, he was born in, in a, in a ma- put in a manger, born not in a house. And so all of a sudden, we we just kind of get the details, but we fail to realize that as each writer gives us an account of of the story of Christ's birth, he is writing it for a purpose. He's not just giving us the story, he's writing and giving us the story for a purpose. So if you look at Mark, when he gives the story of Christ, he just skips it. He scripts the birth altogether because he is speaking to a Roman audience, and he wants to make sure that they see the deeds of Jesus Christ, and there's really no deeds in his birth. He's just born, and so there's no deeds. He skips it. 
John, when he speaks of Christ's birth, really just says that Christ came into the world. He's the light. He's, and he gives a theological reason for Christ's coming. He is the light that came into the world, and the world was saved by him. Luke, who is writing to a Gentile audience, gives us the most of the birth narrative of any one of these, and his emphasis of, is, of course, on the humanity of Christ. And he wants, to, he wants us to know that Christ is human, so he gives us as much detail as possible, and this is why he gives us the story of the shepherds. Because the shepherds come and they see Christ, and it emphasizes his humanity. There is a baby in a manger in swaddling clothes. But as we come to Matthew, as Matthew gives the story of Christ's birth, that birth narrative, Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as king. And he wants to demonstrate that he is the king of kings to come, that he is the king that was promised to come, and he is the king that will come. And so his emphasis is to make sure that you know that Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the throne, that he is the king. And so he begins in chapter 1, and he gives us the genealogy of Christ. And as he goes through that genealogy, he wants you to make sure that you know that he is in the royal line. In other words, he is, he is the king that he is in that royal line, so he has the right to the throne. He is in the Davidic line, and he will ultimately be able to have the right to the throne. But then as he comes through chapter, at the end of the chapter, we see the birth of Christ to a virgin and we start to see that he is now fulfilling prophecy and he will fulfill four prophecies or five prophecies as he goes through chapter one and chapter two. And Matthew wants you to recognize that the prophesied Messiah, the king that was to come, that promised seed of David is here. He is the baby in the manger and he is the rightful king to come. But as we get to chapter 2, we start to see that there is now not just, there are those coming to worship him, but there is antagonism against him. And one of, the, one of the backhanded arguments that Matthew is making here in Matthew chapter 2 is this. Because Herod is so antagonistic against Christ, it starts to prove that Christ is the rightful king. In other words, if Christ was not the rightful king and if Christ didn't have the right to rule, then why would Herod be so mixed up? Why would he be so agitated and upset? It's because Herod actually believed that this was the Messiah to come. This was the one that was talked about. This was the one who was to come to rule and he didn't want anything to do with it. And he wanted to stop this political hot potato before it got too far down the road. Now, Herod is an interesting fellow, and as we get introduced to him today, he is one of those, we could say he is the darkest character of the, Christ, of the Christmas story. He's not, he's not the first guy that you think of and brings a smile to your face. He's really a, a, actually a minor character. He's a minor character in Scripture, and he's actually a minor character in this story. He only appears here in Matthew chapter 2. This is the only place that he is mentioned. 
Now, there's more than one character called Herod in Scripture, and we sometimes get confused as to who is who. And we start to think we see Herod all over the place. And I've often said, I wished in Scripture that they had just named their kids different. You know, if they had just gone through the alphabet, you know, Abe, Bob, you know, and so it just kept going. And so Fred, George, and then all of a sudden you wouldn't have to keep going through here and keep on going, Herod who, Herod what, Herod this. But they like to name their children after them. And so unfortunately we have more than one Herod. But this Herod here in Matthew verse one, uh, verse two, verse one, is the original Herod. He is often usually known as Herod the Great. Uh, He was the first of the Herodian dynasty. And so all the other Herods that that we see in Scripture come from him. They are his sons or grandsons. But we don't want to confuse him. He's not the the Herod that's mentioned in the rest of the Gospels. Um, There's the one that is mentioned that he comes along and he's there at John the ba- with John the Baptist and he puts him to death. He's participated in the trial of Christ. This is Herod's son, Anthopus, Herod Anthopus. And so he is the son of Herod and he's a different Herod. Then there's another Herod in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa. And I think we're all aware of him. He's the guy, Herod Agrippa I, who got eaten by worms. And that story we all remember. And he was, or we should say historical account, he was eaten by worms and he got what he deserves as he defied God. But this is Herod the Great. And really he is the subject of, of our study this morning. And he's the easiest remember, to remember again because he lives and dies in chapter 2. You, he's introduced and he's gone. Now Herod the Great, Great is spoken of quite about quite a bit in history. In other words, secular history records quite a bit about him. Herod came to the throne in about 37 BC, while the Roman Empire was still sorting out the political factions and, and wrestling for control of the Roman Empire after the assassination of Julius Caesar that took place in 44 BC. And two famous Romans who you should be familiar with if you studied history or maybe even took Shakespeare were uh, Mark Anthony and Octavian. The, lo- the, the Roman Senate later gave Octavian the title Caesar Augustus, meaning revert, revered, one, re- revered one. And so when the New Testament mentioned him, it mentions him in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It refers to him as Caesar Augustus, but his real name was Octavian. And Anthony and Octavian were the two main rivals for control of Julius Caesar's throne after he was murdered. So we know that if you studied history, that Julius Caesar was murdered and assassinated in a conspiracy. We talk about March 15, the Ides of March, in the year 44 BC, where conspiracy led by Caesar's own best friend Brutus and others, and they assassinated him. So after the assassination of Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, uh, who was, was Caesar's second in command, he made a powerful speech at Caesar's funeral, and he stood up at the funeral And he basically read the will of Caesar at that point, and he stirred the people up 
of Rome against these conspirators and got them to swear vengeance against these men who had killed Caesar. And so Mark Anthony is, is organizing the army to fight Brutus and bring the conspiracies to justice. And Mark Anthony, being second in command to Julius Caesar, believed that he had a right to the throne. He thought he was next in line for the throne of Caesar. He wanted to claim that. But at the same time, Octavian was Julius's nephew, who was Julius's nephew and also his adopted son, inherited all of Julius Caesar's uh, goods when he died, and he thought that he should be the next Caesar. He wanted the, thr he, the, the throne and thought he had a claim to the throne. Unfortunately, Caesar, when he died, did not leave a, a plan of succession. And so there was no one, he didn't leave a clear plan as to who was to take over when he went. And so both of these men tried to marshal people against him. And the, and the Roman politicians were split over this. And in fact, they were pretty much evenly split behind each man. And so there was, there, there was this impasse that was taking place. And there was a danger of civil war. And so these two rivals for the Roman throne, in order to avoid that civil war, decided that they would, be, they would have a co-reign of some kind, a joint rule together. They would be co-Caesars, as it were. Now, Octavian remained in charge of Rome. He was given the Roman side and the western part of the empire, and Mark Anthony took over the eastern part of the empire, including Jerusalem and Egypt. And so they split the Roman Empire in half and were ruling each side. Mark Anthony was known as a ruthless man. Um, in the divisions of power that followed after Caesar's, Caesar's assassination, he was given command over the army, and one of his things that he was authorized to do was go after the co-conspirators, who had murdered Julius Caesar. And so he launched what became famous a reign of terror as he went after those who, were, who had killed Julius Caesar. And he killed thousands of people and executed many. And during that reign of terror, Mark Anthony made an, an alliance and it became well known to Herod. Now, maybe Mark Anthony liked Herod because he was very harsh and very much like Anthony himself. He was ruthless. Herod was a ruthless man. And he was also very cunning. So Anthony, with Anthony's help, Herod got political support from Octavian in, and in, in 40 BC, four years after Julius Caesar was murdered, the Roman Senate declared Herod king of Judah in 40 BC. And so he, he got him, Herod ingratiated himself in there. He got himself in there and he got himself appointed. And he convinced them that he was the man for the job in order to get this region under Roman control. And he was right. He... He was left to unify and to conquer this, the various factions in the Holy Land. And he, we would say he took that job up with enthusiasm. He, he was harsh. He was, he was very um, murderous and he, ruthless and he went after them. He was a military genius, we could say. And he was able to unite the Holy Land under his rule. 
And so he, it only took him a few years, and by, by 37, really, he had gotten the whole land under his control, which he now ruled with an iron fist. And this is why Israel was under the thumb of Rome when Christ came on the scene, is because he had conquered and, and for Rome the Holy Land. Well, everything was going along fairly well for the empire until... But Anthony, who had originally married Octavian's sister, whose name was Octava, he, he was uh, trying to, and he married her to try to strengthen his allegiance to the family of Julius Caesar, and it worked for a while. But the allegiance began to unravel when Anthony went to Egypt and met Cleopatra. And I think we start to hear some of, some of these in, in Shakespeare and some of our stories, and, and as well as history. And so Anthony went, when he met Cleopatra, he ended up divorcing his wife, who was the sister of Octavian, and announced his intention to marry Cleopatra. He wanted to name her queen of Rome. And so there was this this, uh, schism that was starting. Now, Cleopatra had already bore a child to Julius Caesar before, and so now you can see that Mark Anthony marries her, adopts her son, and now he's starting to get more control or more claim to the throne, as it were, a stronger case. Well, Octavian was furious about all that, because not only did his sister get dumped, but now his rival had a stronger claim to the throne He was starting to get to that point where he was feeling threatened that Mark Anthony would now take over as Caesar. And so Mark Anthony stirred up the Roman citizens, the citizens of Rome, and came against Mark Anthony and started the civil war that they had originally tried to stop and one they had tried to avoid. And so the joint rulership of Octavian and Anthony came to an end. And they were rivals for, for the rest of their time. So there are two contenders for the throne of Julius Caesar. Mark Anthony controlled the Roman army and was a superb military strategist. He was, it was assumed that he was the stronger of the two. Octavian was kind of a novice at war and he basically had to raise up a completely new army out of scratch. He had to get something and raise it up because Mark Anthony had control of the army. But Octavian had the support of most of the people of Rome and the support of the Senate. So you can imagine, this looks like there's gonna be civil war and we have one guy with the army and he's got all, and certainly seems to have the power and the other guy just seems like a political guy. And you're thinking, it's not gonna go well for Mark, for Octavian. And this is exactly what Herod thought. Herod took one look at what was developing and, and being part of Mark Anthony's kingdom, he gave his support to Anthony and sided with him. Not only was he in his area of control, but it just would seem natural that Mark Anthony would win this battle and that he would win. Well, the battle for control of the empire really came down to one great naval battle. It was one of the famous battles in history. It was fought at Actium. 
in 31 BC. And so Octavian was there, Anthony, Cleopatra, everyone was there at the, at the battle and they watched it. And Herod had tried to get his army to support Mark Anthony's cause. He wanted to be there, but there was a war in Arabia that delayed Herod's arrival and in the end, and so he couldn't get there. But in the end, Octavian's army routed Anthony's army in, the, in this naval battle to everyone's surprise. And so when Anthony and Cleopatra saw the battle was not going their way, they fled to Egypt. And when Octavian pursued them, they committed suicide rather than being captured. Now this left Herod in a difficult position. He had backed the wrong horse. He had backed, backed the wrong guy. And now... He was left holding the bag. Herod had lent military and financial support to, to Mark Anthony. He had assumed that he would win, and now Anthony was dead. Octavian had held an unchallenged right to rule Rome, and he had a complete right to rule the whole empire. So you can see now that Herod is in a position where his power is threatened. He's in a position, in a vulnerable position. So Herod did an amazing thing and, and a very clever thing. And it really demonstrates maybe to the core who this man is. Um, he was politically savvy and he seemed to be able to take every situation and turn it into a good one for him. When he found out that Octavian was on the island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean, he went to visit him. He went to visit him. Josephus says that Herod sailed to Rhodes where Caesar then abode. He came without his diadem or his crown, not as king, but in the habit and appearance of a private person, but in his behavior as a king. He concealed nothing of the truth, but spoke this way before Caesar's face. So he goes to see Caesar where Caesar is. He doesn't come as a king. He comes humbly before him. And this is what he said. O Caesar, he says, as I was made king of the Jews by Anthony, so do I profess that I use my royal authority entirely for Anthony's advantage, nor will I conceal this further from you. Would you have found me, conceal this further? You would have found me in arms and inseparable companion of his hand had not the Arabians hindered me. However, I sent him as many auxiliaries as I was able and much food as I could send. Nay, indeed, I did not desert my benefactor, but I gave him the best advice I was able. And when I was no longer able to assist him in war, and I told him that there was only one way of recovering his affairs, and that was to kill Cleopatra, and I promised him that if she was once dead, I would afford him money and walls for security with an army and myself to assist him in his war against you. But his affection for Cleopatra stopped his ears, I confess, and with his last fortune I have laid aside my diadem. 
and have come here to you having my hopes of safety in your virtue. I desire that you would first consider how faithful a friend and not whose friend I have been. Pretty sneaky, eh? Pretty good speech. Well, it worked. It worked. Octavian was moved by that, and Josephus records that Octavian's reply was this. Nay, you shall not only be in safety, but you shall also be a king, and that more firmly than you were before, for you are worthy to reign over a great many subjects by the reason of your loyalty of your friendship. Now endeavor to be equally constant in your friendship to me. I do therefore assure you that I will confirm the kingdom to you by decree. You will find no loss in the death of Anthony. And so here it is. He goes, he makes a gamble, and he turns what seems to be a dire situation into one where he now returns back to Judea in a position more secure than ever more than it was before the whole event took place. And so as he goes back to Judea, now he begins a series of working projects, building projects. And this is what Herod is best known for. He was also hated for it. As he started, he tried to appease the Jews by building the temple that was finally done after his death. He built many uh, cities and many buildings Of course, he needed taxes for that and he needed labor for that. And so they hated him for that. But he was a great architect and he built many things that pleased the Romans. He also built temples and and buildings in Jerusalem that offended the Jews. And it was continually in trouble with them. Now, one thing about Herod especially as he began to age, is that he was paranoid about his power. He was paranoid about his power, and he was ruthless against those who opposed him. He got rid of wives. He killed his sons. In fact, just before his death, he he rounded up some leaders of the Jews who had had a minor rebellion against him, and he placed them in one of his buildings, and he said to his guards, When I die, I want you to kill these guys so that there's mourning in Jerusalem on my death. Nice guy. One, I think it was Augustus, said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. That's how brutal and harsh he was. And so he was not not a kind man. He was a ruthless man who held on to power any way that he could. And he was unafraid to punish those who opposed him. And so he was extremely paranoid. Now, remember, as Christ is is born here, he is is in that end stages of his life. And he he is that paranoid guy. And it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, right? He was king of the Jews, the only one, Herod, to hold that title. And so here 
here comes this magi arriving from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So you can imagine, I, I call this Herod's troubling news. Herod's troubling news. And as we look at Herod this morning and as we look at his reaction through this chapter, I want us to keep in mind that Herod's reaction demonstrates that Christ has the right to rule. He is that king that was promised. And therefore, we need to accept him as king and we need to worship him for all that he is. And so this morning, Herod's reaction gives us proof that Christ is king. So he says, Jesus came and he says, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, that must have come like a shot across the bow to him because here he is the king of the Jews. He is the one who has the, been given the right by Rome to rule the Jews. He is the one who has the title. Now, there certainly were rumblings of the Messiah to come through the Jews. But here for, for Herod, these magi show up, arrive from the east, saying, Where is he who is king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, specifically, what would be so troubling for Herod is this. We often hear the magi and we hear call them kings and we hear, hear them called other titles. But in modern times, they would probably be the cabinet of the prime minister. They were those who were, who were magicians in, in Babylon, in Mede and Persia. They were those who were in the arts of the occult. They were good at math. They were good at, at science. And ultimately, no king in Babylon would ultimately be put into the kingship unless he went through their teachings, through their laws, and he learned them. The, the law of the Medes and Persians was actually their teachings. And so they had the power to make kings, and they had the powers to destroy kings. And so they were, they were basically kingmakers, and so here is Herod sitting on his throne and these guys come in, these kingmakers, and they say, where is the king of the Jews? Where, where has he been born? Now, you can imagine what's going through his mind at this point. I've got kingmakers coming from the east who want to see a king that I don't know about who's been born, who has the right to the throne. He's a threat to me. And are these guys coming to make a, a pact with him, a political pact? What are they doing here? Is this a threat to my throne? And so he is, he is, he is probably taken back extremely says, so we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And again, we would understand that that is a star that appeared, probably Shekinah glory that was raised up in the east. The idea is they saw the star come up, something that had not been there before. We saw it in the east. Now, it doesn't say they followed it. It just said they saw a star and they came. And so when Herod heard the king the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. 
The idea is he was extremely agitated. This is where, what the disciples were when Jesus walked on the water. There was a sense of agitation that he was completely upset. How can this be? What's going on? It says all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Probably they were afraid of him. They were afraid of the fact that when Herod got upset, when Herod was opposed, Herod was ruthless and he put people down and he, they thought, oh no, blood is going to flow in the streets. This is the way this guy works. And so they were agitated and troubled as well. And so Herod, hearing that Herod's troubling news turns into Herod's tricky plan. He says, gathering together all the chief priests and the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they gave him an answer. The king, this ruler that's to come, that this king that's to be born is to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he is. It's a film, it's been prophesied in scripture. Then Herod secretly called the Magi. He calls them to himself and brings them in. Maybe he doesn't want any more publicity. Maybe he doesn't want the, the chief priests and to know what he's up to because maybe he's not sure which side they're on. Maybe they'll support this Messiah. So he calls them in to himself and determined from them the exact, the exact time the star appeared. So the, the idea here is he brings them in and it's like he's trying to get, he's getting information from them and, he, and he's just, well, tell me about your experience. I'm interested in astrology too is almost the idea. Tell me what's going on. I'm just curious. I, I, I want to tip my hat to what you're doing. And so he asks about the exact time that they saw the star. What was going on? Tell me about that. And when he had learned, he, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now he had no intentions of worshiping this new king, right? And we'll see later on exactly that he didn't. But he had no intentions of coming to actually worship this king. He wasn't going to do homage to him. He wanted to keep it quiet, right? Let's keep it quiet. Let's keep the damage as small as possible. We'll just, this will be easy. We find out where the kid's born. We just go over there, off with the head, and it's all done, right? One family's upset. It's okay. And so he's got this plan. If, if we can just, if, if they'll just tell him where it is, he'll come and he can deal with it himself. There's a threat to his throne. He'll deal with it. He'll get it done. And of course, the angel appears to them after they have worshipped him, after they have come in and they have truly worshipped him. We're not sure if when they first came, if they were worshipping, if they were were believers or not, but it certainly seems by the time that they're done, there's genuine worship of the Lord Jesus Christ as they worship him here in the house. And again, we hate to say this. Um, we just did the uh, 
the, the scene the, the, where you put out all the pieces for Christ's birth. And so what we realize is that the Magi weren't there when Christ was born. At the nativity scene, they weren't there. So you might want to move them just a little bit over on the, on the piano because they came a bit later, probably 18 months later. So they might just be outside a little bit, right? Because they came and they visited him what? In the house. In the house. They were no longer in the stable. And so they, they, they worshipped him, and God, having warned them in a dream, uh, did not return to Herod. The Magi left for their own country in another way. And so these true worshippers of Jesus, warned by God, go back to their country a different way, not going back to Herod telling him where Christ is born. Well, Herod did not take kindly to that. And we have what I call Herod's terrifying response, his terrifying response to what took place. And we see that in verse 16. When Herod, then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, right? He didn't just get mad, he got very enraged. This is, this, we want to talk about blowing your stack. We want to say losing your cool. This guy just lost it, right? He is, he is beyond angry. We could say literally a violent rage, a violent rage. He literally went into a rage. It's in the passive form. In other words, he was out of control. His rage controlled him. This is, this is where he's at. He was not voluntarily doing it as if, it's as if the anger had taken control of him and he is just violently in, angered. Blinded his sense. Now you might think, he might have said, well, if the wise men and the Magi were smart enough not to come back, they probably also smart enough to have warned the family that the baby of the baby, right? But he was just angry. He was too angry to think. And it blinds him, and it blinds him in his rage. And he will not allow a threat to his throne to come. He will not allow himself to have a political hot potato. And so he comes up with a plan. And in his rage, he decides, it's better for me to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem and their surrounding area than it is to allow a king to be born and to grow up. Now, you might think that he would get into political hot water, but then again, he's been killing people all the time. What's one more massacre? And so he decides that he will kill all of the babies under two years of age. Now, we, we're assuming that, that the, by the time the Magi gave him the time that they saw the star and that they arrived back, and by the time he realized they hadn't come, that some time had passed. And he probably gave himself a little bit of a buffer and just said, okay, everybody under two's got to go. Now, Bethlehem is not a very big town. 
It's not, it's not like it was a city. It was a very small village. And so more than likely, there was somewhere between four, 20 to 40 babies that would have been killed in that town and maybe a few more in the surrounding area. So it wasn't like there was a huge massacre. But still, every life counts, right? And here is this man in a rage killing all of the babies because he will not take a threat to his throne. So he says, he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in the vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through, the, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled and a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And again, another prophecy fulfilled in the coming of Christ, again pointing to that he is the one that was to come. And so here is, here is Herod doing everything that he can to make sure that another king doesn't come and usurp his throne. And we can tell by his reaction, his, he is so extreme that he believes that Jesus Christ is exactly who he was told he was, king of the Jews, the one prophesied to come. Herod was not ignorant of the Jewish teachings in Judaism. He understood that there was talk of a Messiah that was to come, a redeemer for Israel, one who would bring them salvation, one who would not only restore them spiritually, but would restore them physically and throw off the Gentile kingdoms. And so Herod believed it. Herod demonstrated very clearly through his behavior, both in being troubled by the news and rejecting it. And how sad. Herod had enough knowledge to recognize who Jesus Christ was. He had enough information here where he should have, instead of trying to kill the king to come, he should have bowed his knees and worship the king to come. And so this morning, the question for us is, do you recognize Jesus Christ as the king to come? Is he the king of kings? Is he the one that you have surrendered to? Have you bowed your knee to him? Or with all the information that you've heard and all of the story, the Christmas story and all of the story of Christ growing up, living a perfect life, dying on the cross and being raised again. Have you failed to recognize him for who he is, the King of King and Lord of Lords? And this morning, we want to make sure that we're not another Herod. Yeah, we might, not, we might not sit on a throne, but maybe the throne of our own lives. We might not have the authority to kill others to get our way. But ultimately, our rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is no less severe than Herod's. And so this morning, I call on you. Recognize who Jesus Christ is. Recognize that he is the king of kings. Recognize that even King Herod recognized his right to rule. And he has the right to rule in your heart. So I call you today 
trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call out to him. Grant, ask him to grant you repentance that you might know him and that he might be your Lord and Savior and that when the King of Kings appears, it will be a joyous time for you rather than one of grief. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you for a glimpse into Herod and a recognition that even Herod in his apostate state, in his rebellion against you, in the midst of all of his, son, his sin, recognized that you, as you came and were born Jesus Christ, had the right to rule and was the king of kings. And so I pray this morning that we too would recognize you for who you are and that this baby in the manger didn't stay there, but he is now seated at the right hand of the Father and that he will return and he will put all things under his feet and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray that you would make us those who do it joyfully and not forcefully at your return in your name. Amen.